This is the Thursday I Am Bio mini-sode, where we bring you a full interview from Monday's podcast, Complete and Unfiltered. Today, we share the conversation we had with Reed Tuxen, founder of the Black Coalition Against COVID-19. So I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Reed Tuxen, who's the founder of the Black Coalition Against COVID-19. Reed, welcome to I Am Bio. We're really happy to have you. Great to be with you. I know I'm going to enjoy the conversation. <laughs> Tell us about the Black Coalition Against COVID-19. The BCAC started as a grassroots effort in Washington, D.C. I was privileged to be the commissioner of public health during the height of the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s. And I learned uh, the indelible lesson that if you're going to fight a major uh, health challenge at the scale of a of HIV, AIDS, and now with COVID-19, you need to mount a grassroots community effort that brings from the bottom up efforts to, to, to respond in concert with the efforts of government top down. And so there's sort of a meeting of the middle. Uh, and so we were fortunate to still retain great contacts across the infrastructure of the culture of the District of Columbia, the people who are advocates for the homeless, uh, people who are faith-based uh, communities, poets, musicians, artists, the people who are organized leaders of quite a, a broad cross-section of the city. And we began to pull them together in ways to use these community influencers to, to carry the message, to be the cultural icon in support of positive science-based public health uh, initiatives. And so out of that, we really grew in D.C. But as soon as we started to face the issue of clinical trials enrollment for vaccines, we knew that we needed to bring in more firepower. That led us to creating what has now become the national part of the BCAC, which is the four historically black medical schools, Howard, Meharry, Morehouse, and Charles Drew, and uh, then the National Medical Association, uh, the National Black Nurses Association. Uh, and so we took, uh, Phyllis, those elements and bringing together, really for the first time in an organized, sustained way, the firepower of black health leadership and academic uh, credibility. And, and then we've been now going forward to target the whole nation with science-based, evidence-based, trusted voices in the dialogue. It's fantastic. Um, I've, I've listened to many of the webinars and they are powerful, informative, and, and very much reach people where they are. Um, there's a lot of discussion in the media about vaccine hesitancy in the African-American community. Talk a little bit about where you think this hesitancy comes from. And then let's also talk a little bit about whether or not the hesitancy is all the way through the African-American population. I think there's a lot of discussion going on in the media about whether we're focusing on that too much in the Black community instead of understanding what's behind that hesitancy, which sometimes could be access issues and not hesitancy about the vaccine. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I love the second part of your, of your question, which is really, really important. But yes, to begin at the beginning, there is no question that people of color in this country's experience with America has caused very legitimate and deeply held distrust. The experiences of slavery, of Jim Crow, 
uh, all the way through to the Tuskegee syphilis uh, uh, experiment in the 1930s uh, that went on for several decades, have all created this climate of distrust. These seeds are deeply planted, Phyllis, inside of our culture, as you are well aware. But the tragedy is that those seeds are watered every day through most black folks' uh, experience with contemporary American society. And so when there is this need for thousands and thousands of people supported by millions of others to, to take into the city streets across the nation to declare that my life matters, my dignity is important, that becomes not just a criminal justice or a police issue. It's not just a political issue. In fact, what it is is also very much a health issue. And so we have these seeds of distrust, which are which are challenging. Now, the good news uh, and what's important, as you uh, underscore with your question, Phyllis, is that the black community, just like any other population, is heterogeneous, not homogeneous. And so there are many different approaches to this sort of concern about vaccine hesitancy. We are certainly seeing our older uh, citizens being much more willing and ready to get vaccinated. We see those who are in the middle questioning, and our young people are probably going to be the hardest challenge as we go forward. But what you indicate by the thesis of your question is that it's inappropriate today to label the black community as being somehow outliers or problem people uh, in this regard. In fact, the numbers have switched dramatically, hopefully because of things like the things that we're doing and many others as trusted voices, health professionals, members of the clergy and others have been really moving forward. And so I would now see that we have flipped from where a few months ago we were seeing 60 to 70 percent saying no to now 70 percent saying yes uh, or at least being willing to entertain it if they can get access to more factual information. So I would conclude my response to you, which is, the I think, the take-home message for what you are getting to by the second part of your question. Let us not deny the black community access to vaccines on the assumption that they don't want them, because we are seeing now across the country lines of black people uh, who are standing in line and the supply is running out. And we're seeing numerous uh, African-Americans trying to register and can't get into the registration because of poor Internet connectivity, suboptimal uh, computer skills or tools and so forth. So we're ready. And we need to keep, of course, moving forward with the message. But we are ready as a people to be vaccinated. That's a really important message because I think the back and forth in the press would make it sound like it's the latent hesitancy and the history that's keeping people from getting in line when there are a lot of other issues that are much more related to access the digital divide, as you talked about. So when it comes to health equity, as you're talking about, these are health equity issues. Where do we need to start? How do we build that trust? You've certainly talked about the trusted messengers. You've talked about a lot of the different things that the BCAC is doing with all your partners. How do we get health equity front and center? And maybe talk a little bit about how the Biden administration has has been um, helping with these issues as well. I uh, wrote an editorial in Science a couple of months ago, uh, and it basically focused on this issue of distrust. And, and the observation that I made then, and I make it here, is that when I was Commissioner of Health again in D.C. during the AIDS epidemic, the number one issue we faced was the distrust. Uh, that was what was our biggest paralytic element to overcome for positive community action. How is it possible? How is it possible that 40 years later, 
the number one issue that we are facing with this COVID pandemic in the African-American community is the issue of distrust. Our research community in America, our clinical care delivery system in America, and our health policy uh, apparatus in America has done absolutely nothing to take that off the table. We should be ashamed of ourselves in healthcare today. We should be absolutely ashamed because distrust is not just an idle emotion. It leads to death and preventable misery and suffering. We knew that, we know it now, and the question is, are all of our agencies, is the biopharmaceutical industry, is the clinical care decision, the AMA, the American Hospital Association, are all of us going to come together and have a conversation now about regaining that? It starts with love, with empathy, with caring. It says, I, as a health professional, and ultimately as a member of the American society, have to learn to value each human being's life, not only their own life, but those of others. It has to start with a loving, empathetic, caring environment. And I hope that our country, if we learn anything from this pandemic, it is going to be that it has to, that we now understand that the relationship between human beings who share the same time and space is a sacred, moral, and ethical responsibility. And there are duties that accompany that. And one of those is to treat each other's life as valuable as your own. So I think it really does start there. The Biden-Harris administration has been very, very smart. They have put really good people in place, starting with the president. I think President Biden has worked overtime to convey the message, along with Vice President Harris. You get the sense they care about people for the first time in a long time. You have somebody in the White House who clearly says, I care. It matters to me. And then having people like Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, like Dr. Cameron Webb, these people who are in positions of authority are extraordinarily important in moving forward, not only the rhetoric, but then working with the bureaucracy to create a bureaucracy that responds to Americans, all Americans, with a sense of empathy and a sense of a commitment to equity. What can the biopharmaceutical industry do to help? Well, I think first and foremost, I think that the biopharmaceutical industry needs to be thinking about having the same kind of convening that we saw from the Business Roundtable about a year ago, where all of these extraordinarily powerful CEOs from across America's business enterprise made a statement that said maybe, uh, although it obviously as a member of many private boards and a, and a private sector person myself for, for 15 years of my career, uh, I believe very much in shareholder value, but they made the, the they raised the question to themselves. Maybe shareholder value isn't the only thing, or even the main thing that we as CEOs need to be evaluated by. Maybe it is our contribution to society that is particularly important. Our social responsibility is important. I thought that was a very important predicate, and so the idea then that how I would I would be thrilled. If the leadership of bio, the leadership of pharma, the leadership of the AHA, American Hospital Association, the leadership of the AMA, the leadership of the AAAS, if all of these major, the, I'm a member of the National Academies of Medicine, if the National Academies of Science, all of us got into a room and started to work and say, look, this issue of regaining trust is is important. And we have a role to play in everything we do from who we hire 
to the visibility of the people of color uh, that we bring forward so that the community will understand that uh, that this industry uh, is, is, is benefiting from the intelligence of many different kinds of experiences. Phyllis, let me be very clear. I am not talking here about some kind of just idle uh, affirmative action stuff where you check off a box. I'm saying that we have learned enough in this in this world to know that the smartest inventions, the smartest innovations come when you have multiple perspectives, multiple genius at the table. So let's make sure that we're hiring people, letting those hires be visible. Let's make sure that how we design our clinical trials is being designed to communicate messages in a way that connect with community, that we are investing in the community infrastructure necessary for recruiting clinical trials, but investing in not in a casual slipshod way or a quick hit way, but building for the sustained long run. There are so many of those kinds of things that we have to do. But above all, let us remember, and please do not fall into the trap, that when you see thousands and thousands of your fellow citizens feeling that they have to take to the streets to scream out this primal scream, my life matters. Please don't fall into the trap that that's a political football that you get to kick around. Oh, those are Democrats or those are liberals or those are conservatives or those are Republicans. That's not what this is about. This is about whether human beings feel connected to their society. And so we in healthcare have to recognize that and ask ourselves, how do we begin to embrace or deal with that issue? It comes first with the desire to do it. And then the last thing, Phyllis, it's leadership. That's what we need, leadership. That's fantastic. I think actually you hit on so many points that are important to us at BIO, things that we're thinking about through the bioequality agenda. We're very excited to work on things like clinical trial diversity, workforce development, that whole idea of showcasing the talents across every race and ethnicity, every type of person, I, I think is something that's deeply seated inside uh, BIO. And I think I'm starting, I see it much more flourishing inside our companies as well. So very much aligned with some of the things you said. Can I sneak something in, Phyllis, real quick? Of course, please do. One of the other things, and I think this is one of the key things that BIO can do as a part of a collaborative of others, and that is to help the African-American community and, in fact, all of America embrace science. Yes. Embrace innovation. We have got, I mean, just look at the challenges we faced. People w- took the the speed with which we were able to decode this virus and the speed with which we could reprogram mRNA and other uh, uh, viral prototypes in different ways to create a vaccine in record time. We did not celebrate that accomplishment. We were concerned about the accomplishment. It was, we're trying to spend hours and hours and hours of our time now explaining what is mRNA? What does that mean? What is a virus? What is a viral variant? We now need to embrace science as our friend, not our enemy. And we're going to have to, I believe, mount a very aggressive campaign. And I am calling on, and I am literally calling on, um, literally as we speak, uh, the uh, the Ad Council, uh, the AAAS, uh, the National Academies of Medicine, every player that we can, so that as soon as we get done, uh, hopefully in a few months, with this pandemic critical stage, we start to rebuild now a massive national campaign for embracing science and teaching science. 
And finally, I am absolutely begging everyone in a position of authority in corporate America, I'm begging you, please go to your local school district and push for a better science and mathematics education. You cannot live as a, as a rational adult in the genomic world, in a genomic era, and not understand basic science principles or probabilistic statistical decision-making, because that's the basis of what healthcare will be. We are not ready for it, and it's a shame if we do not try to do something about that. So let's launch a campaign as soon as we get done this for a love and embrace of science. And I want to be the first person to help lead that parade. Well, you know, actually, I was going to ask you other questions, but that is a perfect ending because that is very much uh, what we are committed to at BIO. And I know Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath in particular, passionate about getting to science education across the across the country and the world. Uh, thank you so much, Reed, for your passionate commitment to these issues. And I'm sure we'll be talking again as we get through the pandemic. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Look forward to the next time. Thanks for listening to I Am Bio. Make sure to subscribe on your favorite platform and give us a rating or review.